Cascadia and the edge of the world, Euphomet presents Night Drift with Jim Perry. Good evening. You are listening to Night Drift presented by Euphomet, and I'm Jim Perry. Coming to you tonight from my home studio in the hinterlands of the Oregon coast, directly to the mothership, Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW in Seattle, and streaming worldwide at nightdrift.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Imagine, you wake up to a pitch-black bedroom. A nefarious black shadow begins to walk slowly, ominously towards your bed. You can't move. You try to scream, but nothing comes out. Has this ever happened to you? If it has, you are not alone. Anywhere from 17 to 50% of the population has reported experiencing sleep paralysis at least once in their lifetime. Most people describe the experience as terrifying and attribute it to some sort of paranormal or demonic experience. This leaves sufferers of sleep paralysis really wanting to know what is this really? What are these entities and why are they targeting me and how can I stop it? A new book, They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis, seeks to answer those questions. The author, Vicki Joy Anderson, is here tonight and will share her research and beliefs on this terrifying phenomenon. Listen, I'll be honest, I think I've experienced this a few times. And so, this feels a little personal. And I know for many of you listening right now, it may feel a little personal to you. But first of all, I've got to say thank you to those who listened to last week's episode, the exclusive Night Tripped podcast episode over in the Euphemet feed. It's a panel edition with Mana Aylin, a practicing witch, in addition to writer-investigator Darcy Staniforth and shamanic healer Tim Rothschild. If you haven't checked it out yet, um, listen, it's just a fun, deep chat, the kind of episode that is, you know, maybe perfect for a long road trip. It's perfect for these summer afternoons or evenings when we're just finding our way home or laying maybe lakeside. These are my ideal interpretations of what we're all doing. I know this is not true, <laughs> but maybe I'm just trying to transport myself there right now in, in some regard. You can find that on the Euphemet podcast feed right now. A popular Mexican weather reporter has stirred attention on social media after he posted photographs on Facebook of a large sphere that he said had fallen out of the sky and into a tree near the city of Veracruz. This from Newsweek, just a few days ago. No one knows what the orb is, with experts saying it is unlikely to be bits of space junk from terrestrial launches. On August 1st, Isidore Cano Luna, who runs popular social media accounts in which he makes videos on weather in Mexico, released photos of the strange object dated to July 31st. Though dark and blurry, the photos appear to show how the sphere, which also appears to have at least one antenna-like pole sticking out of it, landed on top of a tree, according to Luna's description. It is a round shape and appears to be very hard plastic or an alloy of various metals, Luna wrote, translated from Spanish. He said people should steer clear of the site as it may have radioactivity and the orb may contain valuable information. <laughs> Wow. He added that he considered the object to possibly be a piece of debris from the Chinese rocket that was out of control. 
probably a reference to the Chinese Long March 5B rocket that made headlines last week after experts predicted its 25-ton booster stage would make an uncontrolled re-entry into Earth's atmosphere and possibly cause debris to hit the ground. Debris possibly related to this rocket booster was indeed found on Monday this week, but it was found in Southeast Asia. That's a little bit of a distance from Mexico. In a later post, Luna said Mexican defense officials would have to investigate this fear and in a follow-up said that highly trained staff were reported to have taken the object away from the tree and removed it from the area. How often have we heard that exact story? Jonathan McDowell, an astrophysicist at the Harvard and Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, told Newsweek he had doubts about the reports of the sphere being related to space debris. One strange characteristic of the sphere is that based on the photos posted by Luna, at least, there do not appear to be any scorch marks suggested of atmospheric reentry. <laughs> so many questions. You can find a link to read that full article and see these photos. It's a very strange looking object. Sort of Sputnik-like something out of a Steven Spielberg movie. You'll have to see it for yourself and let me know what you think it may be, what you think may be going on, Jim, at euphemet.com. This wasn't the only object falling from our skies this week. Check out the article also in the show notes. An incredible photo, an obelisk, a black obelisk stuck into the earth like some serrated chef's knife on a sheep farm in Australia. These stories keep coming in, and it is, I don't know, is it reflective of a trend Does it suggest things are being thrown, blocked, pointed back towards this very earth? In any case, we'll continue tracking the story. And if anyone hearing this wants to comment, email me, jim at youvemet.com, or use hashtag nightdrift on Twitter. Now, tonight, Vicki Joy Anderson and what we see, experience, feel from out of the shadows, entities, beings, nighttime visitors, no one invited. Have you experienced this? Share your story tonight. Hashtag Nightdrift on Twitter. And you can always call us right now and share your story live. 888-298-5569. I'm Jim Perry. And this is Nightdrift.
Follow Nightdrift with Jim Perry on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to receive new episodes of Nightdrift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. With Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW, Seattle. Now, here again is Jim. A footnight to the Clarksville, Tennessee city code requires a practicing fortune teller to have been a Tennessee resident for 10 years and a Clarksville resident for two years. It also requires a fortune teller to have a college degree and have a clean bill of health from a Montgomery County doctor. Now, a city council member is drafting up a repeal which will be reviewed later this week. <laughs> I'm Jim Perry. This is Night Drift. Later this month, Season 5 of Euphemet continues with brand new episodes starting every other Thursday. Keep watching for that on the Euphemet feed and for updates right here on Night Drift. Also this month, I'm really so excited about this. I'm at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. Wednesday, August 24th, with Spectre Vision's Daniel Noah, after a special screening of Rodney Asher's documentary, The Nightmare, which is, I mean, incredibly relevant to what we're talking about here tonight. I'm going to interview Daniel on his relationship with the paranormal as it relates to the topic of the nightmare, and so much more. I'm already hearing from some listeners who have tickets, and they are coming out, and you can still join us. I want to see the spooky side of the second city. Find a link to the tickets in the show notes when this becomes a podcast. That's August 24th in Chicago. So The Nightmare, you know, a fantastic doc on sleep paralysis and nighttime visitations. The subject of this very show tonight and a topic our guest has been exploring intently. 
Vicki Joy Anderson graduated from University of Northwestern in St. Paul, Minnesota, majoring in Bible and English with a writing emphasis. After many years in corporate management, Vicki Joy stepped out in faith to become a full-time author and speaker in 2019. Her book, They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis, is out now. Welcome to Night Drift, Vicki. Hi, Jim. Sorry about that. My mute button was stuck. <laughs> no worries at all. Hey, say, where are you calling uh, us from tonight? I am calling you deep from within the trenches of the Ozark Mountains. Oh, I love it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, hey, you're not wrong. One of the spookiest places in all of the country, maybe all of the world. <laughs> have, have you been in the Ozarks long? Not long at all. And I tell you, I just love it. It has got a personality all of its own. And, you know, we writers, we like to... Um, you know, cloister ourselves away deep into the woods and in strange places. And so this yeah. is just perfect. <laughs> well, yeah. So, you know, you obviously uh, are probably familiar with some of the lore down there and some of the, the mass amounts of stories and sightings and paranormal phenomena that occurs. Yes. Have, have you kind of experienced that as of yet? Have you felt the gravity of that location in that way? You know, interestingly, the only thing I can say in the short time that I've been here is that there are certain cities where when we are there, when we're driving through, um, you know, it sounds silly, but there, uh, there are personalities to certain places and there's, mm. there's, there's histories and there are certain places when I'm driving through and it's not the same as, you know, how sometimes you're on the wrong side of the tracks late at night and you're like, Oh, I got to get out of here. It's more of like just a very subtle kind of weight that that rests on me so there's definitely areas that i have traversed through down here where it's like oh i wonder what the history of this place is because i can feel it <laughs> right it's, it's palpable um yes yeah, I, I have certainly felt that down there and i've i've mentioned it many times on this program for my documentary show euphemet it, man, it takes me down there much more often than I ever would have considered when I started the project. And it's because wow. of the, the amount of personal stories that are there. But re regardless, we're here to talk about something else tonight. Uh, in particular, uh, the, the contents of your book, They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis. As I mentioned at the first of the show, it's something that I believe I've experienced a few times. And I can maybe share a little bit of that later for if listeners are interested in you are interested in hearing what that is. Um, but first of all, let's set the table. Uh, can you just describe what what we know as sleep paralysis and how common is it? Sure. Well, your intro was very informative and concise, and it was a great place to start. And it is a phenomenon that has been documented in medical history as far back as the 17th century. It showed up in a medical treatise in Holland um, at the time, and it uh, documented exactly what we we would describe today, where this woman, who was, of course, predictably deemed, you know, delusional and schizophrenic and mentally ill, but she would talk about this uh, presence that would show up in her bedchamber at night and uh, seemed to be sitting on her and crushing her and she couldn't breathe and uh, just levels of terror and fright off the charts. Um, but then, of course, she would kind of wake up and be really unable to tell 
was that a dream? Was I awake? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's what makes this particular experience so disturbing and sinister is that there's this bizarre element of this type of a nightmare different from most of our nightmares. Even as a four and five-year-old child, Jim, as I was trying to articulate in childlike vocabulary to my parents, I had a special way of describing these dreams. I would always tell them, I had another one of those dreams last night. I knew they were different. I knew there was an element to it that wasn't just my brain defragging at night. And another thing that I would, um, I'm, I'm really actually surprised, Jim, retroactively now as an adult thinking back on, you know, this, the, the onus was on a five-year-old child to try to describe this to parents to get help. Right. And somehow, I don't know how, I had the presence of mind that at that young age to give this detail to my mom. I had one of those dreams last night. I couldn't tell if I was awake or asleep because I could see my teddy bear. I could see my room. I was wearing the same pajamas I woke up in. I, that's, that's pretty observant for a five-year-old. Oh, my goodness. But in the 1970s, there was no uh, phrase sleep paralysis. At least it was not disclosed to the masses. It was not well known. People did not talk about this stuff. And because it so beautifully and eloquently masquerades as a bad dream, uh, parents, as well as those suffering from it, can very easily chalk it off to just a bad dream. And in fact, mm. most of us, even if we have some sort of an understanding that there might be something more sinister, there might be something spiritual, there might be something demonic, there might be something uh, of the realm of the paranormal, you don't want that to be true. You don't want to accept that. You don't want to start speaking that out loud because then the next time it happens, and it always does, you don't want to know in the midst of that dark bedroom this is real. You want that comfort that this is just a dream. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's probably the first thing that anyone is told after experiencing this. Hey, listen, you were just experiencing a nightmare. You were just experiencing a dream, but to the degree that maybe you were experiencing these as a child personally, did, did you have a a struggle in, uh, in describing this and having people believe you in what you were experiencing yes um you know the only people i told when i was very young were my parents i i've always been a somewhat private reclusive sort of person and even amongst my peer groups and my friends and when i was at school i would sort of hang around intentionally the more type a if not downright narcissistic children because they would always talk about themselves and that would keep me safe you know mm-hmm. and and so i didn't do a lot of sharing and opening up and i'll tell you the time jim when i was 15 years old i was in 10th grade and i had a very dear friend uh, we're friends to this day we've known each other for decades and i shared with her during a sleepover this this thing that happens to me and she was 
very empathetic and she listened and she didn't mock me. And, you know, she had all the right reactions. I, I think I scared her to death. <laughs> but um, the next Monday, she came to me at school and she said, I talked to my mom about your, your dreams. And her mother was a very devout Catholic. And her mother informed her, your best friend is demon possessed and she needs to be exercised by a priest. And so as a 15 year old, I was like, okay, I can't talk about this. Um, if I talk about this, it won't be taken at face value. I'm either going to be, you know, some sort of Linda Blair figure in their mind or I'm going to be schizophrenic, or I'm going to be delusional, or I need to be, you know, brought to some sort of uh, professional institution and loaded up on psychotropic medication. And so as a precaution of survival and safety, I never spoke of it again until my 40s. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you verbalized it so well in that experiences like this and a phenomena that you feel like you can't express, you can't share it because mm. of the fear of, you know, all the things you mentioned, you know, of yes. being ostracized, of having the stakes be leveled at you and misdiagnosed and, you know, uh, a whole different route of life occurring to you, being forced onto you. There's really like a double fear to this because there is the fear yes. and, and the pain of the experiences itself, but how that translates to the real world and you can't go yes. anywhere. Yes, absolutely. And, and Jim, something that your listeners won't be able to tell because we're audio only is, and I think this is an important caveat. And I think that a lot of other listeners who have ha perhaps habitually been hounded by this harassment will maybe have an aha moment here. I, I realized in my research that the people that begin having this experience at a very young age and it's persistent, a lot of them have been involved in some sort of very dire childhood trauma. Hmm. And in my case, it was, I was born with a birth defect. It it deformed my face. I was born with deformations. And from 10 days old, which was my very first serious surgery, um, up until about 16 years old, I had dozens upon dozens of reconstructive surgeries. And so this required me to be in the hospital alone for long periods of time, weeks at sometimes. Um, this was the 70s. We had one car and my dad traveled for a living. So I would be in the hospital sometimes for two, three, four weeks. And my mom would only be able to come and visit on the weekends when my, my dad was home with the car. And so I, at a very young age, was in hospitals by myself, strangers coming up to me. And, you know, pretty much every time a nurse comes to your bed, there's something scary. They're talking with words that you don't understand as a child and they're poking you and there's needles. And so it was, it was a trauma. And what I have noticed in a lot of the research I've done and a lot of the case studies and the people who have I spoken to, um, the people that have a pervasive case of sleep paralysis that has lasted for decades, many of them will tell you um, that they had a level of extreme trauma as a child. And it's almost like... Um, you are sort of a target for this almost um, when you've already got the trauma. So playing into the conversation we were just having, you 
it, it is the double fear because for me, I already was coping with massive levels of rejection with my peers because they were bullying me and not wanting to associate with me because of my face and the way that I looked. And so to then start talking this sort of thing so that even when I opened my mouth, I would come off as strange and repugnant to them. There was just no way in the world I was going to do anything more to invite more rejection. And so it yeah. becomes it becomes this like uh, downward spiral of isolation and self protection, which is 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 great because um, a lot of things, not even just sleep paralysis, um, if if operatives can achieve their goal in secret, they'll accomplish far more because they're not going to get exposed, and so. It's this kind of perfect storm of picking just the right victims. And then this happens to them for many years and they keep it a, a secret. And then if they do expose it, they're vulnerable to the way that the adults and caregivers in their life are going to handle it because they're not the type that are going to speak up against it or cause controversy or do anything to, to keep further attention or rejection upon themselves. Wow. Oh my gosh. So using our own social constructs yes. and insecurities against you. And, and you had mentioned something within that line of thought about operatives. And I think that's where this conversation is going to take a turn and you're going to reveal mm -hmm. some really interesting ideas that you have uh, right after we go to this break. This is Night Drift. I'm Jim Perry. We're talking about sleep paralysis, nighttime visitors. Not all of them invited, not all of them wanted. And is there something more to this? That's right after this on Night Drift. into the night. Jim Perry is taking your calls at 425-373-5527 or toll free in Western Washington, 888-298-KKNW-5569.
west of the Cascades to the rest of the world. Lines are open. Call 425-373-5527 or toll free in Western Washington, 888-298-5569. That's 888-298-KKNW. You know, I get so many messages every single week asking for more information about the bumper music we play. So if you go onto Spotify and you search for Euphemet slash Night Drift featured music, there's actually a playlist that a listener put together that includes essentially every single song that we play. It, it's really great. They continue to catalog what we're playing on here and you can go on there and discover it yourself. Thank you so much. I'm glad people enjoy the music we play on here. It's a little bit different than a lot of other sort of paranormal-centric shows, I would say. I'm glad you dig it. I'm Jim Perry. This is Night Drift. You can find us across social media at Euphemet and me at It's Jim Perry. So I also want to let you know that now airing every week is the Night Drift Archives. Fridays and Saturdays at 1 a.m. We drift overnight. It's the best of Night Drift. Listen on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW in Seattle, and worldwide at nightdrift.com. I'm really excited that Night Drift is on all weekend long now on KKNW. And if you're listening to this live, the radio broadcast of this show, and you want more, you can always find all of these on the Euphemet podcast feed wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, just visit euphemet.com. We're back here with guest Vicki Joy Anderson. Her book, They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis, is out now. And we were just turning the corner on a story and what I think is some of the findings that Vicki has discovered on this journey to understand the sleep, the very personal sleep paralysis that has been affecting her, but that she had found was affecting a lot of other people. And I think... Vicki, thank you so much for, for being on Night Drift this week with me. Absolutely. I'm loving it. You know, I, I think I'd like to learn a little bit more about uh, your relationship to this book, how it started, and how that process was of talking with other experiencers. Yeah. So sleep paralysis had sort of completely left my mind and when I when I turned 40 my mom passed away and so I was again very vulnerable and there were other things going on in my life at that time too that just a very very stressful job I was living a couple thousand miles away from my family and so I didn't have a real strong support system and um other other things as well and the sleep paralysis came back and it came back with a vengeance I'm talking every single night and at oh one God. point at one point i i was marking on a calendar and every single night for five weeks and here i am a 40 year old woman and i'm literally sleeping with my light on and calling my dad every night on speakerphone and you know doing the whole classic you know horror movie stuff where he's like praying over my room and stuff like that but it was it yeah. was pers- it was persistent it did not go away easily and after that whole situation settled down, I sort of was just on a personal quest. I've had it. I'm going to figure this out. I'm getting out from underneath the, the boot 
of of this oppressor. And so it was really just a self-seeking venture to begin with. And um, what happened after I started to learn more is um, I really got a pay a debt of gratitude, Jim, to, to Gaia.com. It's burst mm-hmm. on, on, the, on the scene. And what they've done for sufferers of sleep paralysis who've been gaslit and relegated to delusional corners and straitjackets, what Gaia.com has done is they have put into the mainstream collective conscious now concepts such as astral projection, the Akashic records, Atlantean predecessors, Tucker Carlson's on on Fox News multiple times talking to high-level military uh, folks about uh, UFO disclosure. And so my my theory became, you know what? If everybody is going to now welcome these conversations and the people that talk about astral projection and the lost sunk city of Atlantis and UFOs, if that's no longer crazy talk, then those of us who have sleep suffered from sleep paralysis, it's time for us to come out of the shadows and say, we are not crazy. That's so fascinating. I mean, listen, uh, personally, uh, uh, my listeners will probably know what I think about Tucker Carlson, but, <laughs> but Vicki, um, the idea that that uh, a topic reaching mainstream status, such as the conversations with you know the the, the article, my friend Ralph Blumenthal and and uh, you know co-writers had had uh, published about UAPs in the New York Times, yeah. uh, spurning on this conversation, this water cooler talk where things are more approachable in that realm. Having that now, hearing from you, uh, helps reinforce this idea that hey, listen, if they're talking about that. I can talk about this. I should be talking mm-hmm. about this. I should come out in yeah. public. What was that journey like? And, and when you made that decision, was that rough to go through that process or, or did you feel yes. validated sort of right away? I, I felt a lot of anxiety and vulnerability because as I mentioned earlier, I have been a very private person my whole life. I've been very introverted up until this book got published. I have never been on social media. I, wow. I just feared um, exposure. I feared rejection. I I feared people seeing my face and making fun of me, all those triggers that go yeah. back, you know? And so writing a book, I'm, although I've always wanted to be a writer, Jim, I wanted to write under a pen name and I kind of just wanted to hide my whole life. And so mm. it was very, um, it, on the surface, it was very vulnerable. But in addition to that, I really penned myself into a very precarious position and I knew it, but because of my research and my personal experiences and the way this book came together, I'm probably not going to make friends on either side of the Mm. aisle because Mm. um, I, as you can tell from the title of my book, the dark weapon of sleep paralysis, that that's not really the same message as, you know, these are, wonderful spirit guides that want to enlighten us and help us to ascend. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I actually, Jim, I get far more vitriol from the Christian side of the aisle, even Mm. though my book is very much from, it's not exclusively biblical, but it includes a biblical perspective, of course, you know, having gone to a Bible college and everything, but 
what what I'm finding is on on that side of the aisle, if you don't just carte blanche chalk every single thing about this experience off to demons, if you don't use the D word, if you don't say it's a demon, then you're a heretic, you're a right. shill. And I have a very specific, you know, I I was an English major, Jim, and I I'm, I am a writer. And so I choose my words very carefully. I'm very meticulous and intentional about the words that I choose. And so um, I, I prescribe to the, the notion, and I, I know this is narrow, and um, a lot of Christians have maybe not even ever heard this perspective, but uh, there is a theological category where demons are very specifically, exclusively, the disembodied souls of the Nephilim, mm. who were the demigod um, offspring of the Watchers and human women, and that in the Great Flood, when they were killed because they were half, half angelic being, they were immortal, and so their bodies perished, and they they remained. And so, um, and then the Christians said, "Well, I want a chapter and verse. I need a chapter and verse." And so. The, the fact is, you're not going to find a chapter and verse um, in scripture uh, about that. But there are many parabiblical and extra biblical texts that do mention this and talk about it very uh, outright. Uh, the Book of Enoch 1, Dead Sea Scrolls, and a litany of Jewish literature. And um, so I'm, I'm of the ilk that, you know, if as a Christian you want to believe that every single thing in the Bible is true, that's great, but you also have to understand that in the vast realm of all things that are true, there are things that lie outside of the scriptures that are also true. And mm, so yeah. some sometimes there's not a chapter and verse, but there's ample evidence abounding that, that there's another reality. And so I'm willing to um, agree that these things that show up in our bedroom i call them the bellboys uh because mm. they they kind of are the ones that sort of usher you in um to you know the uh to, to use the new age terminology and the cabalistic terminology they're the ones that kind of get you settled in in the merkaba you know the the tetrahedron of light the the astral uber i like to call it and um <laughs> and and then they shuttle you up to the astral realm if if the sleep paralysis episode continues long enough you know once the vibrations kick in and um the separation begins the, you know if if the event isn't stopped you will wind up in the astral and i believe I'm not saying that there's no such thing as a demon in the astral realm, but I do think that demons are somewhat terrestrial. So you'll, they're the bellboys. They'll be in your bedroom. They're at the bedpost. They're the shadow men and, you know, those spooky little, you know, whatever. But whenever I use the term astral entities, I'm choosing that phrase very intentionally because there is an entire roster of different beings and creatures and entities and even humans in the astral realm at any given time and so to say that everything up there's a demon it's just not it's just not theologically or literally or spiritually correct and so 
so um and this is from the sort of the biblical scholar position right correct correct fascinating and and it you know i think a lot of people are going to hear this and of course you know most of the people listening to this conversation right now are pretty knowledgeable about these topics uh, definitely have their unique perspectives um but there's there's a lot of things you're talking about right now that that relate to a lot of other phenomenons and i wonder how many of these you believe could be linked things like out-of-body experiences things like astral projection things like the abduction phenomenon yes do you believe like for example those three topics and more there is a connection yes absolutely all all three of them um i I think that so for a lot of people the sleep paralysis experience is very brief and people especially people who have experienced it numerous times over their life we have all discovered ways to kind of cut the experience short like um there are things that we can do um physiologically um some people who have habitual uh sleep paralysis and i've done this myself um there's something somewhat bizarre about it jim a lot of us have have talked about this and have determined that um when you go to bed at night you have a premonition I'm going to have sleep paralysis tonight. Now, the the medical and scientific community poo-poos this by saying you become a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a psychosomatic, you know, assumption that if you scare mm. yourself into that, then it will happen. But many mm. of us, we have experienced that you know when it's going to happen. And I think it's just another layer of torment because mm. then you lay there knowing as soon as I fall asleep, this is going to happen. And so there is usually a preceding premonition that it's going to happen. And so um a lot of us who have suffered this for many, many years, we we have tricks. So, for example, um, one thing that I've done in the past is I set my alarm for three in the morning. And that way, if I'm stuck in one of these things, my alarm will jolt me out of it. So um, oh, fascinating. Yeah, there's great uh, information. Some of the um, great horror writers of old, like H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe, and even, I think, Edison. I've, I've read many of these great men of literature and science. A lot of them um, would intentionally induce these uh, out-of-body and lucid dreaming and sleep paralysis astral experiences because they would actually go into the to the astral realm and be inspired to either write their literature or their get their scientific information. And this goes all the way back, Jim, to um, uh, uh, the Asclepions of the first mm. and second century, uh, Galen, and you know they Galen, you know, dreamed a cure. That's how Galen kind of hit the hit the scene. Galen being the second century kind of super psychiatrist, super surgeon. Um, Mm. And he was heading up one of the largest Asclepions, which, you know, a healing temple in Pergamum. And what's very interesting, if you want to go the theological route about Pergamum, is 130 years before uh, Galen was, was a physician, um, Antipas is mentioned in the book of Revelation. He was the faithful martyr he was killed. He was uh, um, trained by John. So the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, uh, Antipas was one of his students. And Antipas was kind of doing his missions work there in Pergamon. 
And the the Asclepians, um, the the high priests and the, the healing priests and 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 such there, they were losing business because this guy was also healing people, but he was doing it free and he was doing it in the name of Jesus. And this was a Zeus worshiping culture. They did not appreciate uh, losing the business when Antipas came in and hung up a shingle. And so they threatened him and they said, you know, you repent and um give this votive offering, and he refused to do it. And so he was thrown into the iron effigy of a, of a bull and burned alive, offered as a sacrifice to Zeus. Mm. And his death is is uh, memorialized in the book of Revelation, where he's called the faithful martyr. But uh, in that same section, it talks about Pergamon as the seat of Satan or where the throne of Satan is. And so mm. Here we have ancient healing uh, establishments where they would sedate their patients. They would go into a deep underground labyrinth of tunnels, and then they would sleep in these underground catacombs, and non-poisonous snakes would slither around on them at night. And they would, because of the sedative and everything going on, they would fall into these altered states of consciousness, they would go into the astral and they would very often be given correct information about their, their disease and their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so um, we see the same <laughs> thing. Yeah, exactly. And so um, I'm probably getting wildly off course to the question that you originally no, that's answered. Okay. But... <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. No, please, please continue. It's great. Absolutely. So what I'm saying is that, um, if these sleep paralysis experiences are cut short, if people have found physiological loopholes, some people say they wiggle their toes. And some people, um, we know a lot of people who have had sleep paralysis for many, many, many decades, they're very good without even trying to, they lucid dream. And so um, the, the, beauty, the beauty of lucid dreaming is once you realize like, oh no, I'm caught in one of these sleep paralysis episodes, you can, you can like lucidly kind of uh draw the narrative out of there you can say that, uh, you know there's a door here i'm going to go through the door now there's a car the, the keys are in the car i'm driving mm. away you know like you can you can wow. escape so there are many physiological things um uh i can't remember if it was edgar Allan poe or lovecraft but one of these guys as i was talking about earlier he this is just brilliant he would drift off into these uh, out of um, uh, alternate states of consciousness and would go into the astral. But what he would do, because, you know, anyone, whether you're going into the astral intentionally or unintentionally, and whether you're getting good or bad vibes when you're there, the fact is even the people that are uh, experienced at going up there and are willingly and wanting and desiring to go up there, even they if they're being intellectually honest, will often tell you that it's terrifying and there's lower vibrational beings that they run into who are no good. And so I think everyone is in agreement that there are aspects of the astral that are are dangerous. So what um, Poe or, or, or whoever this was, because I can't quite remember, he would fall asleep in a chair in his, in his office, in his writing studio, and it would have, a, like, it had like a hardwood floor and he would fall asleep with a lead ball in his hand and he would he would fall into you know these altered states of consciousness and then right about the time that he gleaned what he wanted to glean but then it got scary 
he would fall asleep. And in falling asleep, his arm would go limp and he would drop the lead ball and it would wake him up. Oh, wow. So there are people that have have mastered this and by way of cutting it short, um, we've all heard stories and it it's not even Christians or religious people that tell this story, but the the magic word for stopping all sleep paralysis experiences dead in the tracks is to cry out the name of Jesus. And I have even talked to Muslims and atheists who say, hey, look, I don't believe in the guy, but it works. So I'll do it. How <laughs> and, interesting. <laughs> yep. And um, the, the interesting thing about that, too, there was a guy. Let me see if I can remember his name. Um, let's see. There was a guy, um, Joe Jordan. Uh, in the 90s, when he was still just a humble MUFON field investigator, he's he's a bigwig now. He's like a state section director in Florida for MUFON, and I think he's the co-founder of CE4 Research Group. But okay. back, back in the 90s, he was a field investigator for MUFON, and he uh, did a study where he got 350 UFO abductees together, and he asked various questions and, you know, put together a, a very uh, thorough case study. And much to his shock, he recognized that a majority of these UFO abductees of all different religious and a-religious persuasions all realized at some point in their um, numerous abductions that if they called on the name of Jesus, it would stop the attack. Hmm. And this was um, not really research that they, that's really not something they wanted to discover. And in fact, it was um, kind of kept under wraps for a while. But the fact of the matter is there are physiological and spiritual and religious ways that a sleep paralysis sufferer, sufferer can cut, cut the event short. But if the event is not cut short, and if you escalate further and further into the experience without it, you know, someone waking you up or, or, or whatever your tactic is, I believe that there is a trajectory. And the way all those things that you mentioned are related is many of them are just a, a part of the uninterrupted whole experience. So you'll have the sleep paralysis. And then uh, you will go from this altered state of consciousness to a separation of the, you know, the light body or the soul or whatever. There's many different words. Um, there's a separation. And at that point, there's usually some very loud vibrational sounds going on in your ear. They turn then to vibrations you actually feel all over your body. There's a separation. There's an out-of-body experience. At this point, if the sleep paralysis experience is stopped, if you're jolted awake, um, this is the point where you'll slam back into your body. This is the point where people say they see themselves laying in the bed. Um, but if it's not interrupted, that will then take you into the astral. Now we have the astral projection. So that is how I think sleep paralysis, out-of-body experiences, and astral projection relate. The UFO abduction phenomenon is something separate but very similar. And there's controversy on this question too, Jim. There's There are some people that say sleep paralysis and the UFO abduction experience have nothing to do with each other. We have to keep them separate. And then there's other people that think they're linked. And I'm sort of somewhere in between um, because there's different kinds of UFO abduction stories. There's the people who are driving in their car 
in broad daylight, who are in a cornfield, you know, it's broad daylight. They're, they are awake. Um, but there are people who have UFO abduction experiences that start out as a sleep paralysis experience. The differences between a sleep paralysis, nocturnal sleep paralysis, and a nocturnal UFO abduction are some simple things. Sleep, sleep paralysis is usually darkness. UFO abductions are usually bright lights. Sleep paralysis, usually the entity is at the door. UFO abductions, the entity is usually at the window. Um, so there, uh, and then with sleep paralysis, you are being pulled upward into the astral, whereas with the UFO, you are at least initially being pulled vertically out, out of the, the home. Vicki, I just got the, I got the notice to snap out of my haze here from <laughs> listening to you so intently and, and to let me know the show is ending. But listen, I want to ask you, would you be interested in, in staying after this, after the show ends? And continuing this talk just for a few more minutes for our podcast listeners. Absolutely. Great. Because I want to know all about operatives. I want to know what some of the medical connections are. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into that stage of process. Follow the show on social media at Eufomet, E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T. This is the this the Johnny Carson segment of this program, <laughs> where I've asked you to to stay a little extra time here. Uh, I, I'm I'm fascinated by this entire process that you laid out and and some of the connections between this phenomenon. But I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what you found, what you believe you have found, about an operation afoot within all of this, and how that relates to your experiences. Yeah. Well, this is the part, Jim, where there's going to be obviously di vast differences of opinion, and that's okay. We do not have to be afraid of uh, open dialogue. And so I do realize and I empathize with the fact that a lot of this is very triggering um, to people yeah. on both on both sides of the aisle. And my 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 intent is not to offend or convert. It's to have an open dialogue you know i found a quote is i believe it's in the book as well and i love this and this is where i'm kind of going with this portion uh michael t compton he is associated with the university school of medicine in atlanta georgia and speaking um on a healthy union between religion and medicine he states i will show that modern day that the modern day disjunction of religion and health is not reflective of the attitudes of the cult of Asclepius in antiquity, professionals mm. and practitioners in both realms of care can gain by embracing the knowledge and talents of each other. 
So the way I look at it, Jim, is I don't I don't think it has to be, uh, you know, New Agers on one side of the aisle and Christians on the other side of the aisle. We put on boxing gloves and we, you know, beat the crap out of each other. I think what we have to look at this like is there's a thousand piece puzzle and one side of the aisle has been given 500 pieces and the other side has been given 500 pieces. And until we come together and share our pieces, we will never have a full picture. Wow, you can't. Yeah. You cannot divorce the spiritual and paranormal aspects of this from the physiological and medical aspects of it. They are both components. And I go at length in, in the book about this. And where I feel like a lot of, you know, people on my side of the aisle where, where Christians, um, fail to, to get their ideas into the marketplace is, um, I'm alarmed at the i am alarmed that the supernatural um is is such a triggering topic for for yeah. christians you know ellie yeah. marzuli ellie marzuli calls the bible the guidebook to the supernatural and to me it is an absolute paradox to say that you believe that the bible is somehow the infallible word of god but then not believe uh in in the supernatural you you have the most supernatural book ever written in your hand (laughs) (laughs) so i i really want and i hope this book will will bring it forward um i think it's time we have evolved as a culture we are intelligent we are woke and awake we have things now in the in the collective conscious of ideas that we were never allowed to talk about before. We are ripe to have intellectually honest discussions now about some of these things. We don't have to gaslight each other. Yeah, geez. And that's, that is really how this feels sometimes. Listen, we talk about some of these elements being triggering for folks. There's an equal amount of people on the other side of the aisle where the minute you mention the Bible, they yes. are triggered and they're saying, why are you talking about this to me? You know, yes. so so it's on both sides. But listen, mm-hmm. um, there is a space somewhere in between that should be all inclusive of these ideas and learn from what this stuff is. Right. Um, yes. You know, you you had mentioned and this goes back to uh, this this study, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Jordan. You know, for, yes. you know, of MUFON, he had, uh, he speaks about sort of demonic deception within this as well, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he had found that when, uh, uh, you know, a number of abductees or experiencers uh, use Jesus, you know, the name mm-hmm. of Jesus, to it, it can stop these. Well, it would seem that somewhere in the middle meeting with that is that there is a frequency or an energy just to that name alone. Right. And mm-hmm. that it's we're talking about the astral realm. Right. And we're yes. talking about uh, frequencies and vibrations that are accompanying these. This is what a lot of people are believing. Yes. Do you feel that uh, this process of sleep paralysis is that intention maligned and that it's directly being used as a operation of sorts? And and how and why? I I do. And, and my book goes into, into a lot of it. It's not a cut and dry thing. Um, Mm. I think that, I think that there's different, um, um, uh, kind of made to order, uh, sort of 
tactics that they use for different people. But um, w- one of the um, quotes that I that I use in the book, I'm going to just kind of dig it up here in in the book. Um, if I had to summarize very simplistically, what is the end goal of this? I would say uh, transformation. No one who who winds up in the astral realm intentionally or unintentionally is not influenced by it. Um, mm. There's a transformation. And, you know, Christians use this kind of Christianese language about, you know, you invite Jesus into your heart and the, the old self dies and now you're, you're new and you, you know, and sure. somebody you're going to rent. But the fact of the matter is the, the, the enemy, according to the, to the theological and scriptural, you know, and and even in the occult, if you study the occult and you study, you know, things that were said by um, Aleister Crowley and Anton LaVey, and that they will tell you that there's always, you know, a reversal. Uh, so everything that you see in, in scripture, you see a mockery or a, 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 a another side of that. And so yeah. there's also a salvation experience on the other side of it as well and meaning simply transformation and um i gotta read you this this quote jim it's great clive clive barker he's an english playwright author film director he's most known for uh, the hellraiser franchise pinhead oh my gosh scares the hell out of me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, I know. I, mean, I I could write a whole book about Pinhead. That sucks. Yeah. That there yeah, there is should. stuff. <laughs> but I love this book. He says, "Confrontation with the very dark or the very bright should be about what you do tomorrow, what that does to your life thereafter." I don't believe these people who've had their paranormal experience and do nothing with this information except to go on the Phil Donahue show and say that they've seen them. These people aren't transformed. Hmm. And and the fact that he's talking about confrontations with the very dark or the very bright. So whether it's a Christian who's trying to persuade you to become a Christian, or it's some unknown, perhaps untrustworthy being in the astral realm, luring you to their side of things. Mm. Um, and both of them are going to present as angels of light. In fact, even scripture says that Satan himself presents himself as an angel of light. So we can't use our emotions or our feelings or our judgments to determine what which of these enemies are, which of these entities are friends and which are foe. Because I'll give you an example, even biblically, every time in scripture, I shouldn't say every time, but many times in scripture, when a human being encounters an angelic being, the Bible is very clear that the, the feeling that they feel is terror. They're afraid. They tremble. They fall. I think some of them faint. I think there's even a verse that um, if you take the vernacular of the day I- into its present, he, he, I think he yeah, I think he actually wet his pants. <laughs> and, and what is the angel always saying to the people? Do, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, that's always the first thing that the angels say. So the fact is, we can encounter an angel from heaven who's coming to declare good news, and we're going to feel terror. On on the other hand, we can we can encounter beings that are nefarious and 
have sinister motives and we can wake up and say, I, I, he was full of light and I felt love. And so our emotions are extremely untrustworthy in these situations. We need something more mm. than the, than the emotion of it. And so this is kind of where I think we need a new vocabulary because for, for that, and I'm stereotyping there, there's people that there's outliers that fall out of these, but for Christians, sure. it's, Every single thing in the astral realm is a demon. Um, and then there are people on the other side of the aisle that will say there's lower vibrational and higher vibrational beings in the astral realm. You have to kind of weed through them and find which ones are good and which ones are bad. Um, but I don't look at it like lower or higher vibrational or good or bad or nefarious or friendly. The the thing that I'm exploring now in, in the case studies and the people that I've been interviewing now and talking for further research for, for, for another book is that I'm starting to understand that some of these um, spirit guides and some of, of the entities in the astral that present themselves as friend are actually presenting themselves in the first cycle of the narcissistic cycle, which is the idealize, the love bomb phase, you know, and in any mm. narcissistic cycle, there's that you know, there's idealize, devalue, discard, and then it goes in a circle. And you're in this constant merry-go-round with these narcissistic people. Wow, idealize, devalue, discard. Idealize, devalue, discard. And so and you when found this replicates within this within these beings that you're discovering. Yes. So what I'm finding is a lot of people um, when when they first get to the astral and it's very exciting and they're filled with all this excitement and they're getting all this secret knowledge and power and and it's manifesting in the physical and there there's this sense of being chosen and enlightened and you know it's it's very much like like a Christian would would explain a salvation experience it, it's a salvation experience but um, the love bomb phase. Uh, and it, this can last a day, it can last 10 years, depending on what your purpose is or how valuable you are to these mm. things. And so what I'm finding, and it's very disturbing, is I'm just getting mail up the wazoo from, from people that are saying, I came out of the New Age, I came out of Wicca, I came out of witchcraft, I came out of the occult, but I'm, I'm still having these problems. And so it's kind of like the fine print on those ads, you know, where, you know, okay, I have social anxiety, so here's a pill I can take. And then they don't tell you that, you know, the social anxiety goes away, but, you know, now you're going to have hemorrhoids and you can't sleep right. and you know, right. all this stuff. Yeah. And so um, what, what a lot of people don't tell you up front is, hey, when you're up here, you might run into higher vibrational beings and they'll give you secret knowledge and you'll have power and you'll have enlightenment and, you know, um, all your dreams are going to come true and you're going to have astral sex and everything's going to be great. They don't necessarily tell you the fine print, but what, what they're willing to tell you once they've gotten away from it is at the same time that they were receiving all of this love bombing, there was a, a torment going on as well. They were getting, having sleep paralysis. They were having paranormal activity. They were having visitations. Um, there were physical and physiological manifestations. There was fear. There was, um, 
you know, mental and emotional issues. And so I just want to challenge people who are maybe new to or exploring the astral realm or who are online watching YouTube videos on how to harness sleep paralysis. And you're, you're trying very desperately to learn how to do this. A lot of YouTube videos. Yes. That um, it might be. uh, And and I just challenge people to uh, really assess a definition beyond just good or bad evil or, 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 you know, whatever. Um, And to not use your emotions as a guide um just because something is bright and is able to trip you know the dopamine in your head and give you orgasmic levels of feelings and emotions it that doesn't necessarily mean they're good any more than when messenger angels from heaven come and talk to people and scare the mess out of them that they're bad so yeah just wow. to just use to just use discernment and care there's a lot we don't know about these entities and we don't know that they're our friend and because even remember hearkening back to what we were talking about in in the days of the asclepions in many cases when they went to the astral they were given an accurate diagnosis and they were cured they were given something very valuable Mm -hmm. and so just because we're being given a valuable gift or we're being given something that we want doesn't mean that these things might just be narcissistic entities playing on the fact that um jim i don't necessarily think that these things are smarter than we are i look at it more like a diamond we Hmm. we we here on in the earthly realm we we look at a diamond and it's one dimensional so we see one side and i think that these things it's not that they're smarter than us or are capable of of more knowledge or discovery than we are it's that they have a three-dimensional diamond that they can twist and turn and they can see all these other facets and so we just have a part of the picture and so um i just challenge people who are exploring the the realm and you're in the love bomb phase now where this is all very exciting um keep your eyes peeled for narcissistic signs of them being devalued and discarded because the one thing that I am um, seeing from a lot of the people that are that are emailing me now who have come out of this is at some point, whether it's a week later, 10 years later, 30 years later, at some point, you will hit that final stage and you will be discarded. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just I just want everyone to be wise Um when you're interacting with things that we don't really know a lot about question the spirits test the spirits don't just um open your door to them um, because they're dangling a carrot in front of you of something that you want very badly well it's a great piece of advice i think and listen you know um the principle of correspondence right as above Mm -hmm. so below Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this the way that we may be interacting or treated by these astral beings in such astral planes also very much reflects or mirrors how the supernatural phenomenon, how the paranormal yes. uh, interacts with us here on this earthly realm. Yes. Yes. And that, you know, some of my favorite authors and investigators have wrote extensively of a trickster element to this. Yes. And, I think sometimes belief 
in these regards, uh, it can be our worst enemy because that mm-hmm. that that uh, allows us to accept certain fortunes. It allows yes. us to accept certain principles when we really maybe in my own personal, uh, okay, here we go, belief, uh, you know, we don't know if these are too good to be true. We don't mm-hmm. know what is exactly going on because we don't know enough yeah. of, of, of what this is perhaps, but Absolutely. Uh, Vicky, listen, this is uh this has been such a fascinating conversation. I would love to do a Euphemet feature on you. I, I would awesome. it would be so brilliant. And listen, I I am so happy you're not hiding anymore. Mm, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh real quick, since this will be at the end of the podcast version of this, let us know again where can people find you, where can people find your work, but also if they're having an experience like this, where can they where can they get in touch with you? Absolutely. So my website is vickijoyanderson.com. Vicky is spelled V-I-C-K-I. And there is a contact page um, on that site. And I'm happy to take anyone's uh, emails. Um, I love iron sharpening iron. You know, we can be respectful and kind, but I absolutely welcome people that are that are in disagreement with me i learn so much i i've learned more from uh about this you know from reading occult literature than reading the bible because yeah. the bible is sort of hush hush on it you know sure. and i'm not and, you know encouraging you know a bunch of christians go out and start reading occult literature but what i'm telling you is um going back to you know what i was saying earlier about um we each have uh half the puzzle pieces here so I am I'm happy to talk to people who are perhaps uh, disturbed by or confused by anything that I just said, but I'm also happy to hear the stories of people that have never been listened to or never been believed. So um, come on over to VickiJoyAnderson.com and send me a note. My book, They Only Come Out at Night, is available exclusively on LAMarzuli.net. Well, it's a fascinating read, and this was a great chat, and I look forward to talking with you more. Uh, thank you so much, Vicki. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, Jim. Oh, yeah. I do too. This has been a great time. And thank you for listening to Night Drift again with Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, KKNW, 1150 AM in Seattle. You can hear the show anytime on its podcast feed, including the remainder of this conversation on the podcast feed. Go find it wherever you're listening to them. Go to euphemet.com for more and join us next Sunday. And until then, keep looking up. Follow Night Drift with Jim Perry on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes.